are on a uh, Wednesday night series this September regarding living in biblical end times. So how about if we uh, pray? Father God, we invite Holy Spirit tonight to be our teacher, to illuminate the Scriptures to us, to bring us things that we did not know, understanding that we should have, knowing, Lord God, our days, our times are in your hands, and we could trust you with the days ahead. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far on night one, we looked at this introduction to this very big topic, and we also looked at the second night on why we are in end times. So I can't go through any of that tonight. But uh, tonight I wanted to do something important uh, as an exposition on a very important Bible chapter from Jesus' words uh, that reveals to us a lot about this end time scenario. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 24 tonight, and that will show us in Jesus' words what we are calling end times. So, off we go. Uh, first, I need to make some important preface comments. Um, Matthew 24 has been called the little apocalypse. In other words, the little book of Revelation, uh, all in one chapter. Uh, that's a good name for it. Uh, much of what the body of Christ, though, has taught about this chapter over the years has been in error. It has been wrong, and it has caused great uh, misunderstandings and confusion in the body of Christ. And most of those who have taught that error have been Pentecostals. They've been the biggest offenders of this, and that's so sad. Um, the very best teaching I ever heard on Matthew 24 and 25 came from Walter Healy. He taught that first, when I first heard it in our Bible school, when we first started it, uh, back in 1986, and I'm listening to him going, boy, you got this right. And I was like stunned because he was telling me everything of the opposite I was ever told about these chapters. And uh, even scholarly books that I read were confusing. And you're like, why is this? It absolutely made sense. So he had true, uh, sensible light from heaven on these words of Jesus. So some of the comments you'll hear tonight, well, a lot of them do come from him, but some of these comments you'll hear from tonight might surprise some folks. Uh, you, you might, might cause you to make your head go back a couple times. It certainly did when I first heard it. Uh, so let's take a look here at some Bible basics first of Bible study. And that is when we read these chapters, we need to remember... Always keep it in mind when we're reading the Gospels, who is Jesus speaking to? That is incredibly important because sometimes he's speaking just to the Jews, just to Israel alone, not to the church. Sometimes he's speaking to his disciples, which do relate to the church one day. And uh, sometimes he has harsh words uh, very, very harsh words, for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders of his day who claim to know better. Jesus, interesting, never has a harsh words for someone in sin. How about that? Only for the religious crowd who claim to know better and don't even see their sin. Those he has harsh words for, that they lead others, others into a false belief. So when we look at uh, this section here, we need to remember uh, the church should never apply corrective words or prophetic words from Jesus towards Israel to the church. 
what he says towards Israel should never be applied to the church. That is a big error that is very common, especially in the 20th century that has been taught. It's going to produce a lot of error and confusion. Also, we need to remember, you'll hear me mention it again, when you look at Matthew chapter 24, it's connected to Matthew chapter 25. It's one discourse. That's real, real important. This is one full sermon, if you want to call it, full statement of Jesus coming forth. Uh, so that's important to remember. Um, we have to remember when the scriptures were originally written, both Old Testament and New Testament, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse markings. Very nice, well-meaning people put them there for us in the Middle Ages to help us read our Bibles. I like it. It certainly helps me a lot. But we need to remember, although the Word of God is inspired by Holy Spirit, chapter divisions, verse markings aren't necessarily inspired by Holy Spirit. Men put them there, and sometimes they make mistakes. Chapters begin where they shouldn't begin. Chapters end where they shouldn't end. So if you're doing Matthew 24, technically 24 and 25 is one chapter. But that's, of course, not how our Bibles have it laid out because of nice people who want to help us uh, putting those division markers in there. So we need to be very sensitive when we read the Scriptures is this chapter really beginning here? Is it really ending here? Just sensible questions. Paul is famous for that. A lot of the chapters that have been ascribed to his writings shouldn't end where they end and things like that. So that's a common problem here. So we need to remember this section, 24 and 25, are all one discourse. Also, we need to remember he doesn't say this until he immediately walks out of the temple. And after he walks out of the temple, he had just blasted them for their religious system of their day for rejecting him as the Messiah in chapter 23. So we need to remember it's related. Uh, whenever we read, we need to ask, is this related to the chapter previous? Is this related to the chapter following? In this case, when you read Matthew 24 and 25, we need to remember it does have a relationship directly to chapter 23. After he just, just sweet loving Jesus, uh, you know, calls them all kinds of nasty names that I'm sure their eyebrows went up. How dare you talk to us like this? We must have been on their faces. Um, so when you get to the end of chapter 23, after he gets done blasting all them, he continues with another strong words, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That's just saying, I'm going to kick this temple over. How you like that, huh? What? That's like, that's a major insult to them. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, he's talking here as the Messiah, uh, not Jesus coming here to teach you. He's coming as the Messiah here as he's talking to them. So then we have chapter 24. Start in verse 1. And it says, Jesus left the temple area and he was going on his way. That's right after he blasted them. Now, chapter 24, verse 1 is connected, like I just said, to the end of chapter 23. Jesus' words of woe and doom to Israel's religious system. So we go on reading in chapter 24, verse 1. And when his disciples came up to the point, I'm sorry, when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings, 
to him. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, when Jesus had blasted these Pharisees and the religious system of of his day and mentioned that the temple would basically your house would be left desolate, the apostles, the disciples, they're, they're good Jews. They must have had a love for the temple. Apparently, they were either very surprised or didn't like what Jesus said. So they're walking out and they're pointing things out to him. Oh, look at the temple buildings. They're making it a point to emphasize. You got to read between the lines there. Aren't they nice? You don't like these, Jesus? Okay, so, um, so they went out this way here in voice one, verse one, to point out how lovely the temple building was to them. They were impressed with the temple. Jesus was not fooled. He replied to them in verse two, but he responded to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, whoa, he's going to drop a bomb. Truly I say to you is an Aramaic expression, which means what follows, you will not believe me. You're going to call me a liar. I have to tell you up front, I'm telling you the truth. Rabbis in Jesus' day would raise their hand to heaven and say, truly I say to you, uh, taking an oath. We don't believe Jesus did that, but that's how heavy that word is. And whenever he says these things, he always drops bombs after he says this. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. In other words, yes, so much for your temple. Uh, verse 2 here, Jesus is trying to get their minds off the carnal. Isn't these temple buildings beautiful? Uh, and of course, in 35 years to come, about give or take, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. So now we see here in verse 3, it says here, Jesus takes a seat on the Mountain of Olives. He's about to speak to them about the prophetic future of Israel on the very spot that he's going to return in his second coming. That's wild. Remember, he he said in in, uh, chapter 23, uh, you will not see me until you say, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he returns, it's on that spot he returns at. Wow. And it's from that spot now, he's going to speak prophetically. Wow. Verse 3, and he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, right now he's got the disciples' attention. And they're like confused. I don't get it. What are you talking about, Jesus? Now, here he sat down. And apparently there were people with him besides the 12 apostles. It doesn't tell us that because they had to get to him privately. Why would you get to him privately if if you're the only people there? Obviously, there were other people that followed them out of the temple following Jesus. So they had to get to him privately and ask him these questions. Jesus has now sparked their curiosity and they want to know. So let's get back to more basics here. Chapter 24 and 25 are one discourse We should not separate them, but treat them as one. Do not try to understand one chapter without the other alongside, or you won't get understanding. They belong together. If you chop them up, you will get error. And that is how this section of Scripture has been treated for decades and decades by the church. They've chopped it up all over the place. Um... I'm, I, Pastor Walt used to say, Jesus is not schizophrenic. He doesn't change topics right and left where, where he's making no logical sense. 
That's how the church has treated this section of Scripture, by chopping it up like that. So when we read this, we need to remember these are Jewish times, right? Uh, Jesus had not yet risen from the dead. This is the Old Testament times, not New Testament times. You could call it New Testament times when the temple uh, veil is written in half, and therefore the way of God is open to all. You could say that is beginning the New Testament. You could say Jesus dying on the cross, his rising from the dead, his ascension into heaven. All those are the beginnings of New Testament times. But this is still Old Testament times. And his message is first to the house of Israel, to the Jewish people. He's their Jewish Messiah. And it's very, very important here. So as we read this, we're reading Jewish prophetic times that are going to be spoken of. Now, don't throw stones at me. The church is not here. Chapter 24 and 25 is not, capital letters, is not about the church. And that's how it's been taught for decades. It is not about the church. The church is not anywhere in these two chapters. Zero. None of these verses are about the church. None of these verses are about Christian future history. There's nothing here about the rapture. That has been taught wrongly in these chapters. Nothing. These are meant to be read in chronological order. As, as I said, Jesus is not schizophrenic. He doesn't jump from topic to topic. He does clarify himself at times when he says something in a different way. We'll get into that. But here we have now verses 27 to 31. If you have your Bibles in front of you, it'll be a big help. But from verses 27 to 31, this is about the second coming of the Messiah. Him. In verse 32, the prophetic words come to an end. And now Jesus is going to start to clarify himself in a different way by using parables. And so Jesus goes on to use parables to clarify himself and bring more understanding in chapter 25 with more parables. So let's start here then in chapter 24, uh, verse 3. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> the disciples came to him privately and saying, <clears throat> Tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So, Jesus' disciples asks him three questions. Jesus answers those three questions in chronological order as they ask them in verses 4 to 31. He answers all three questions. The first question, when will these things take place? Now, the disciples are referring to Jesus' comments in chapter 23 when he blasts the Pharisees and the religious system of his day. Judgment on the temple, judgment on the fallen religious system of Israel that's rejected their Messiah. When are these things going to take place? Their second question is, what will be the sign of your coming? And their third question is, and the end of the age. Now note here, when we talk about the end of the world, that's not their main concern. Their concern is the Jewish time. That was their concern speaking of their race. They were concerned about themselves. They can still consider themselves Jews. So what about us, the end of the age? So now remember here, verses 9 to 26, Jesus is only speaking to Jews, period. Then in verses 27 to 31, he's speaking about his second 
coming. So, question number one, when will these things take place? Well, the short answer is not so soon. Uh, in verses four to eight, uh, this is about centuries to come after Jesus' resurrection. The age in which the Jews live in among the Christians, when they're going to be persecuted by the Christians. Hundreds of years are glossed over here in verses 4 to 8 with no detail. Let's look at it. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ. And they will mislead many people. And you will be hearing wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not alarmed, for these things must take place. And that the end is not yet. For a nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So, he glosses over hundreds of years to come. When you get to verse 9, then. Then is a shift word. He just shifted his thoughts. And it's a shift in prophetic time. Now this is way future of their day. For our thinking, it's the beginning of what we call the tribulation period of the Jews. This is the time period now in verses 9 through 28 that he is going to be talking historically in chronological order about what happens during the tribulation period that is also called Daniel's 70th week. We cannot go tonight in detail about Daniel's 70th week. We'll be here a few more hours. And that's and all I'm going to be doing this month, we're not even going to get into the tribulation period at all. We're talking about the biblical days we're living in just before it happens. So here it's going to be talking about Jewish time. And if you're taking notes, verses 9 to 14 are about the first half of the tribulation period, which is about three and one half years long. Then verses 15 to 28 is the second half of the tribulation period, about three and a half years long. Actually, a little less than three and a half years. So let's do the first one now, verses 9 to 14. This is about specifically the first half of the tribulation period. Then verse 9, they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. This is still future of our day. We don't know when. Verse 10, and at that time, many will fall, and they will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. He's talking about to the end of the tribulation period. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That is a misteaching today. Well, Jesus can't come back until the gospel's preached all over the world. No, that's during the tribulation period this happens not before. Has nothing to do with the church evangelizing the world. It's a supernatural move of God during the first half of the tribulation period. All right, verse 15. 
Now, this refers to Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. We're not going to turn there, but if you go to Daniel 12, 11, you'll see this. Verse, verse 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then he continues. Uh, basically, this is the Antichrist putting a pig on the altar and saying, this is your God, basically. Uh, verse 16, and then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This is tribulation time. Whoever is on the housetop might not, uh, must not go down to get things out of his house. Now, he's using hyperbole here, real big exaggerations intentionally to show you this is serious. And whoever is in the field must not go back to get his cloak. But woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Moreover, pray that when you flee, you will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation that has never occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Um, we talked a little bit about that last week. And the elect here, who are the elect, these are believing Jews during the tribulation period. This is not the church. There are people who teach the elect is the church. No. These are believing Jews, his people, the elect, the natural seed of Abraham. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, here, here he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, he has just answered question two, the return of Jesus. When will be the sign of your coming? That is the sign of his coming. He just answered question two. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, vultures in some translations are translated eagles. This does not represent America. This does not represent England, as some people have taught. Bad teaching. Okay, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. The corpse are those who have Christ rejectors among the Jews. The vultures are evil men who have killed them, period. That's simple. Nothing deeper here. Um, verse 29, but immediately after those days of tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heaven will be shaking, and then the Son of Man will, be, will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds on the sky with power and great glory. So here he comes but how does the whole earth see him simultaneously? I mean, there's 24 time zones. Some have taught, oh, television. Yeah, it's possible, but I really don't think so. Jesus more likely returns at the speed of light. If he returns at the speed of light and circles the globe, guess what? All time zones see him simultaneously. Without theoretical physics, we could not be able to understand that. 
That's more than likely what this means. Am I 100% sure? No. Maybe it is TV. I don't know. But no, I, I think we have here, uh, he returns at the speed of light. And you have to remember, when he's walking through walls with a glorified body, right? That, that, that's the light spectrum, which is radiation able to walk through solid objects. So anyway, that's what more, more than likely what's happening here. You don't have to accept that, but I'm just saying, that's more than likely what's happening here. Now, when you get to verse 30, he starts to answer their third question. And the end of the age, Jesus? And then this will be the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. That's the end of the age. He has just answered all three of their questions. Now, when we get to verse 29 through 31, which we just looked at here, um, he has now answered their questions. Jesus has now ex is going to expand on his prophetic words. Right now, everything he gave was prophetic. Now he's going to go to their questions through parables to bring more understanding. Jesus is now going to shift from prophetic words to parables. And here we have chapter 24, verses 35 to 51. A very long reading here. And it's called the parable of the fig tree. Some of your Bibles might have that right over it in verse 32. Mine does. Okay. Um, and it's also called using the days of Noah as an example. So verses 32 to 41 is the parable. Verses 42 to 51 is warnings and exhortations about the parable. So let's take a look at this. Um, verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. Okay, stop. I had said this last week. It's worth repeating again. Anytime you hear Jesus mention the fig tree, this is the natural seed of Abraham. This is the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation all through the Bible consistently is seen as the fig tree. The olive tree is, not, is spiritual Israel. That's you and me. All believers of all centuries. Anytime you look at the olive tree, that's us. Fig tree, meh, that's natural Israel. So he's telling them, take a good look at Israel here, the fig tree. And it says here, as soon as its branches have become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know the summer is near. So you too will see all these things and recognize he is right at the door. And we talked about this last week. This is the rebirth of the nation of Israel in June of 1948 that Jesus is talking about. Nowhere in history after Jesus' words could this have been fulfilled until June 1948. Nowhere. Nowhere in the history of the human race. Okay, then, those who were born at that time, he's right at the door. Now he drops another bomb. Truly I say to you, verse 34, this generation, the one born in 1948, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So here he's talking about that generation uh, will see his return. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. That means you can trust me. That's what that means. You can trust me. Uh, I'm sure eyebrows went up when he said that. Okay, now we get to verse 47, uh, 37. He now uses an example, and that's the example of Noah. 
Noah's days. Verse 37, for coming, for the coming of the Son of Man, he's like changing the topic here a little bit. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. He's using an example here. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. That's not the rapture as this has been taught. So will the Son of Man be. At that time, there will be two in the field, and one will be taken, and one will be left. That is not the rapture. The women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. That is not the rapture. Poop, that one was taken. Oh, that one, sorry, honey, you're going to stay. No, that is not what this is about. Absolutely not. As it has been taught wrong. So, as in the days of Noah here example, another parabolic example. Verse 37, um, like the days of Noah. That like is a big word. Like is a metaphorical comparison. It's called a simile in Scripture. The Bible and Jesus do use literary tools of speech to express what they're saying. This is a metaphor. Verse 39, took away, again, does not refer to the rapture. It's referring to the wicked of the world are judged. They die. They are taken away. Uh, from verses 40 to 41, uh, which we just read about uh, two men in the field, two women grinding. There's a parallel reading of this in Luke chapter 17. Let's go there and look at it. Verses 34 and 36, Jesus is speaking. I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. That is not the rapture. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. That is not the rapture. Two men in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. That is not the rapture. Bedtime here represents, uh, two in one bed, it represents nighttime. It's a picture. Grinding is a daytime activity. It represents the day, so the day and the night. Field, it represents daily life and activities. And the whole point here is the wicked are judged, but the righteous shall remain. Not the righteous taken away. The righteous remain, the wicked are taken away. All right, Matthew 24 here from verses 42 to 51. Jesus has another exhortation for the Jews about they must be ready for his second coming. Verse 42, therefore be on the alert. For you do not know the day or the hour of the Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that the head of the house has known at the what time the thief and the night was coming, he would be on the alert, and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready as well, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour which you do not think he will. Just as his first coming was at an hour that they didn't think either. Verse 45. Who then is faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge? Whoa, did I just jump in the wrong place? I'm okay. Uh, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom the master has put in charge of his household slaves to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. More bombs. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And, but that if the evil... A slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time. And he begins beating his fellow slaves and eats and drinks those habitually drunk. Then the master of the slave will come on that day when he does not expect and the hour when he does not know and will cut him in two. Wow. 
and assign him to a place with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ooh, heavy words. So here the whole point is, you missed my first coming. You better not miss the second one. Now, of course, that's kind of a prophetic statement. They're not going to be there. He exhorts them to consider the kind of lives they ought to be living. Will their faith be in the Messiah or not? Interesting, Jesus says something else similar in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, in the second part of the verse. Very amazing verse. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What a shocking statement. It's in really in reference to his brethren, the Jewish nation. Not us, but to the Jewish nation. So will you be believing? These are great warnings Jesus gives. Now, I'm not here tonight uh, to do an exposition on chapter 25. I only want to do one on 24. But I did say there one discourse. So I do want to make a few comments here on chapter 25 because it's connected to chapter 24. So let's just do this briefly without great detail. All right, in chapter 25 here, Jesus is going to continue with parables. He's got another parable, and it's the parable of the ten virgins. Please hear this clearly. This is written to the Jews and not the church. If you're assuming this is written to the church before you read it, you will have error. Horrible error has been taught because of this parable in years past in the 20th century. Ten virgins, ooh, those were born again. Ooh, they have to have oil in their lamps. The Holy Spirit. Ooh, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get raptured. This has been taught. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you won't be raptured. If you're not speaking in tongues, you won't be raptured. Baloney. You can't control the rapture. It's a sovereign event. You can be in the rapture and believe dopey. How's that sound? He'll clarify you. It's a sovereign event for his church. The problem with all those teachings is it's a gospel of works. If faith got me saved, faith keeps me saved. If grace got me saved, grace keeps me saved. I don't start in faith and end up in works. Well, faith got me saved, but work is going to keep me saved. That is error. That is not New Testament. And the churches have taught that for centuries. Well, you have to be found worthy when he comes. If the blood of Jesus has covered me and cleansed me from all unrighteousness, I already am. I can't add anything to it. If I could, what do I need him for? This is like simple stuff, and yet horrible, horrible things have been taught. Well, you've got to be seeking the Lord daily, that your lamp has to be filled, or you'll miss him when he's coming. That's a gospel of dead works. Don't ever fall for those lies. It's a gospel of works, not faith. This has nothing to do with the church. In verses 1 to 13, the parable of ten virgins. Now, I'm not going to read the entire thing here, but I want to make some comments. These virgins are Jews, not Christians. This is the covenant God has made with Abraham and has made them pure and holy and has given them the promise of righteousness one day. This is all about the kingdom of heaven in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins. What's Jesus talking about? The kingdom of heaven. How about that one? Here we have numbers. The number ten. The number five. These are pictures, not literal. 
10 is a picture of completeness. 5 is a number of grace. This is about the future history of how the Jewish nation will treat their Messiah in a parabolic form. Note the word five here. Half of the Jews are prudent and they accept the grace to receive the Messiah. Five of the virgins are foolish and they they reject their Messiah. That's what Jesus has been talking about so far in uh, chapter 24. Five were foolish and rejected the offer. The lamp here, the lamp is the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 105 set that standard. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God is the lamp. And uh, the oil has to do with the oil of the gospel of the covenant that they're being offered. Notice here in verse 5, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. All of them did. Even the ones that had the oil. All of them did. They all got drowsy. That's the Jewish nation over the years forgetting that the Messiah is coming. And here in uh, verse 6 here, but at midnight... There was finally a shout, behold the bridegroom, come out and meet him. The Messiah's second coming is upon you. And here in chapter 25, Jesus reveals his second coming several times in chapter 25. Half of the Jews did not receive the word of grace, half of them did. And for those that did not, it's too late. It's too late to believe now, faith is needed, I'm here now. When he's there, you don't need faith. Faith is believing in what I do not see. If he's there, what do I need faith for? I don't need it. And in verses 12 and 13, Jesus warns them that they should believe before he comes, not when he comes. And here comes another bomb in verse 12. There, the virgins who refused to believe were not allowed in. Verse 12, and Jesus answered and said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. This can never be said to the church. You got to get that. Never. Because those of us who have believed and have trusted in him have received him as Lord and Savior. This is spoken to Jews at this time who reject their Messiah and have no oil of salvation in them. Jesus never says to his church, I never knew you. He says that to the unbeliever only that don't want him. So here we have then in chapter 25, in verses 14 through 30, another parable, the parable of the talents. Now there's more than one of these in the Gospels. This is a specific one. And this is similar in believing in the Messiah and being faithful in faith. Again, these are Jews being talked about, not the church. Then after he's done with that, in verses 31 through 46, we have the great white throne judgment. This is not a parable. This is a teaching from Jesus on judgment and how the Gentiles nations treated the Jews. Now, very interesting here. We have in these two chapters, we have prophetic words of Jesus, we have parables of Jesus, and then a teaching from Jesus. Wow. That's, that's an unusual set of chapters. Um, again, the church is not here. You and I are probably with Jesus 
observing the judgment taking place. We all are already in heaven in glorified bodies. So it's very likely we are observing Jesus as witnesses with this. So my purpose tonight was to help clear up the, found, uh, the confusion that people have done to these chapters over the, over the decades, the condemnation people have put on people for not being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I believe in being baptized in the Holy Spirit. The condemnation of treating Christians like second-class Christians if they don't speak in tongues. I believe in speaking in tongues. But let's get this clear. This is Jewish time being talked about, not the church. And uh, not to approach it this way is going to cause confusion and harm and hurt, which has happened for decades. I don't know about you, but I've heard all kinds of bizarre teachings coming out of Matthew 24 and 25. So, uh, and you're not like, uh, what? Uh-huh, uh, what? Not really quite sure what I'm re hearing. And this Walter Healy guy teaches at Bible school on Matthew 24 and 25, and I'm like, Oh, that's different. But it also came with clarity like, this is the Spirit of God talking through this man. This isn't him. This is the anointing of God operating through him. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I got to look at this again. I have to re-examine how I think because of, I don't know anything, right? I'm taught this from other uh, ministries on television, all saying basically the same thing because they all read from the same books that somebody else taught on. Uh, thus, the problem in Christianity, it's monkey see, monkey do, monkey follow after you. Nobody has original thoughts. Nobody seeks the Lord for themselves to really find out what the Spirit of God is saying. And they just repeat things blindly without considering. And uh, it really was a shock for me to reconsider, rewire my thinking on let's get straight here what Jesus is talking about regarding end times. So, uh, let's close tonight as we've been doing every week. How about if we just stand up? Um, let's read Isaiah 33 verse 6 out of the Amplified Bible. A breath of fresh air. He will be the security and stability of your times. A time of a treasure of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is your treasure. Always remember, Jesus, in him I have my security. I have my stability. I have my assurance. I never have to have fear. What if I not have enough oil in my lamp that I don't have to live with that kind of, of doubt? I can be secure in Christ. I will not fear. I will serve him with enthusiasm. Amen? Amen. Next week, I will do another exposition on Ezekiel 38 and 39, which lead us right to the beginning of the tribulation period. I had said, we're talking about this month, the biblical days we live in in the end times. Those are the days we are now living in, which lead us right up to the beginning of the tribulation period. And if you've never been taught on that, they're an eye-opener. Jaws can drop to your chest when you hear some of the things coming from those two chapters. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you that truly, Lord God, our days and our times are in your hands. We fear not. We thank you, Lord God, you have uh, revealed the end from the beginning. You've revealed to us, Father God, uh, the ages of time. We are privileged, Lord, to live in the time we live in. That, Father God, we would be used of you in this day as men and women who are pillars of truth, Father God, carrying your word to a lost and dying world that needs Christ. We thank you for this, that you would use us in our days. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.